Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Sharp China. I'm your host, Andrew Sharp, and sitting across from me, Bill Bishop. Bill, how you doing? Good. Good to be back. Good to see you. We've got Tashi here at the start of the episode, which I feel like has to be a good omen for what's to come. Well, I think he'll sleep through it, but it's okay. Has life calmed down in the wake of party congress? Yeah, we're back to sort of a steady state now. Okay, well, we have a lot to cover today. First of all, we got some good questions that we may or may not get to on this episode, but either way, we're going to do a more extended mailbag segment next week. So if you've got questions for us, you can send them to email at sharpchina.fm. As for the agenda today, there are rumors that the government may be softening its COVID policy. But before we get there, I think it's useful to take stock of of what the current policy looks like. So I want to begin with an article from the Financial Times. They write, workers have been staging an exodus this weekend from the world's largest iPhone factory amid a coronavirus outbreak at the Foxconn plant in central China. The huge complex in the city of Zhengzhou which workers say produces Apple's iPhone 14, is the latest manufacturing center to be hobbled by President Xi Jinping's tough zero-COVID policies. Five workers who spoke to the Financial Times said that the situation at the plant had gradually deteriorated as COVID continued to spread, with food and medical supplies running low and workers being locked in dormitory rooms for quarantine causing hundreds of employees to flee on foot over the weekend. It was total chaos in the dormitories, said a 22-year-old worker. We jumped a plastic fence and a metal fence to get out of the campus. I will never go back to Foxconn, said a worker named Shu, who escaped the plant at 2 a.m. on Sunday. He and four friends were on the highway walking more than 200 kilometers to their homes. Um... All of that is pretty horrifying. And and just so people have a sense for the context here, this is happening at a plant that shipped $32 billion of Apple electronics in 2019. And before we get to the lockdowns there and elsewhere, a, a basic question about information flow, like would we have known about this if the workers hadn't broken out? and walked home, and then it became a huge story on on Chinese social media. There were bits coming out last week through social media that something might be going on at the at the, um, the Foxconn plant in Zhengzhou, um, mm-hmm. but uh, it really took off when there started being videos of people basically escaping. And, you know, there were enough that got out that it, it was very quickly became a realization that this, you know, something going on inside that factory complex. You know, what's interesting is the official data for Zhengzhou and the number of cases was still very low and didn't clearly didn't reflect any case numbers at the Zhengzhou factory, the Foxconn factory complex. So it's, it's kind of interesting whether they were not reporting to the Zhengzhou city, whether they were, we don't, we don't know, but ultimately because of these people fleeing because of the pictures that started circulating, the videos started circulating. That's how it very quickly became a thing on the Chinese internet, and then on the you know leaked over into the into the the overseas internet, the rest of the world internet, and then the the Foxconn and um, the uh, local government were forced to respond. And and what was the response? 
Well, it was, you know, Foxconn was, you know, they they said they were going to you know, pay workers more who stayed. They were going to do more to provide sort of quarantine care, testing, food, et cetera, for people who were affected. Uh, just, I think, last night uh, or Wednesday, China time, the uh, Zhengzhou announced that they were the area where that Foxconn factory is, is actually now under what they call static management, I think, for seven days, which effectively means lockdown. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean they're not producing it, but it but it does mean that there you know there's a big enough of an outbreak there that the government had to step in and, and the, the situation at the factory itself so I'm sort of visualizing things correctly there are thousands of workers that will come and live there hundreds okay I think at that complex I think there's um, I think north of a hundred thousand not two hundred thousand workers Wow okay yeah it's massive it's it's why we have cheap relatively cheap Apple iPhones. Interesting. So, you know, Foxconn would have known the situation. I assume Apple would have known the true situation. Maybe not, though, right? We, we, don't, we don't know. But now it's a, you know, Foxconn had to raise wages significantly. I think they're offering uh, like bonuses of effective, uh, the equivalent of $55 a day for the workers who stay. And then if you stay and produce for, I think, a month straight, you get like a little more than $2,000 um, mm-hmm. um, as a bonus. And so, there, I think this again is a uh, short term. They have to deal with the COVID outbreak. Medium, longer term, it's going to raise the cost for Foxconn. Yeah, well, and and that's one of the reasons I asked about the like your your discussion of Apple. Did they know? Did they not know? Maybe they didn't know. What I'm curious about with the information flow is like, how confident can we be that we know about all of the COVID lockdowns? Oh, we don't. I mean, what's interesting, we we, we certainly. Um, what's really interesting, I think, over especially the last few weeks, is it's been, you know, you, there there've been an official number, the daily official case count, and there have been some cities that have talked about how their, you know, partial certain districts or, or areas are in some kind of a lockdown. Um, but since the Party Congress, you've seen um, a, a spike in cases, even though again it's it's tiny compared to what we're used to in the U.S. You've mm-hmm. seen um, a uh, more and more cities where where now you're hearing about the, they're in partial parts of them are locked down. Um, there's other data that um, certainly heard from one one business person I know who's based on their data from their businesses across China have never seen the lockdown at this level. Wow! In terms of the the low the sort of the level of um, pressed activity. And so, you know, Bloomberg had a story, I think, yesterday about unannounced, I forget the term they use, or, or covert city lockdowns. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- this is uh, the, the impact on the economy right now in October, I think, is, is at a level that um, it, it's among the probably the worst months we've seen in a while. Well, and as far as the mechanics of what this policy looks like in practice, the, the FT wrote that local authorities were scrambling to organize buses to gather the people who had escaped Foxconn and, quote, bring those workers home and into centralized quarantine. So where exactly is the government taking those workers? Because bringing them home and bringing them to centralized quarantine seems like it's in conflict. Uh, Well, most places, at least most cities now have some sort of centralized quarantine facilities. Mm-hmm. Some have built their, you know, you, you've seen pictures of in some cities where they're building, um, you know, just acres of what, what look like 
sort of almost like mobile homes, but they're quarantine facilities or quarantine containers. Um, in some cases, several hundred or thousands. Um, other places, it's a local hotel. Uh, some nice, some not so nice. Um, it, it, it. We don't know. Yeah, but it, it's a. And the problem, of course, is for the is for the the local governments from from which these uh, workers have left, or these these local areas from which the workers have left to go to work at Foxconn. You know, they have to deal with their. Um, with their residents, but at the same time, they don't really want to deal with them potentially bringing back, you know, bringing COVID back into their community. So, so it's, it's a big mess. Yeah. And, and with the busing aspect of it, isn't it true that the, you can have people who are infected and then have them bust out of the local communities so that the numbers stay down? Like, is that one of the ways that the government's using these buses? Yeah. So, so when, when your city goes into lockdown, um, or partial or full lockdown, one of the, the goals, usually if it's really bad, if it's a big city, you'll have a central leader. Um, so far, it's been the vice premier, the only the only uh, female vice premier, the only female member of the last Politburo named Sun Chunlan, who, who she's sort of like the, the COVID czar or the COVID grim reaper, whatever you call it. But if, if things got really bad, she would show up, mm-hmm. do an inspection, basically lead the sort of direct the work. I assume yell at the local officials, but we never get that part in the in the readouts. And then always the officials will say, "Okay, well, we have a goal now. Within X number of days, we have to ensure that all new cases are only found in these quarant- in quarantined areas." Okay, right? These quarantine facilities. So we have what they say um, they call it like uh, spreading in the community. So we have to make sure that there is zero spread in the community. And one of the ways they've ended up doing that is by uh, bussing large numbers of people outside of their area of jurisdiction. So, for example, if it's a city, mm-hmm. they just move them, they just bust them out to facilities somewhere in the countryside. And then, therefore, they're they're no longer spreading in the city. They could be spreading in the countryside, but it's no longer a problem for the city. Yeah. Well, and so this could be another we don't know situation, but what do we know about the the conditions of the places they're bussed to and also what Chinese people feel about this practice. So the, so the conditions they're bust to, the more rural, probably the worse they are. Um, we, we, there are some awful pictures going around. There's also, um, in some of the bigger cities, that the, they're not, I suppose some of them aren't terrible, but mm-hmm. I don't think there are any place any of us would really want to go um, regardless. The, the um, you know, there was a, a huge uproar uh, in September because this sort of clearing out of all cases in the in community spread led to a real tragedy. It was in, um, uh, uh, I think it was in Guizhou, where, um, which is in a sort of a mountainous area, and they were taking people and putting them on buses and taking them out of the city. And there was a bus that that grabbed some, basically took some people from a from a middle class community, and decided to move them through the mountains in the middle of the night, and it drove off the road into a ravine and I think 27 people died. Yeah. And it became this huge uproar online and then the sort of censored, harmonized away over the, over the following few days. Yeah. There was that hashtag. We, we are on that bus. Right. right? Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, that particular story jumped out at me because it makes no sense to bus people around at two in the morning, except to, suppress what's happening well they had to hit a political goal so they were again this was i think um they were told within the next number of days you have to get this to spread in the community to zero right so so and the thing is is and i think one of the reasons 
why um you know the 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 dynamic zero COVID policy as it as it flows from the center down into the localities why we we see some real excesses is the the political logic for, if you're a, if you're a local official it the logic the sort of the political incentives are have been set up with this with this COVID policy that you're going to get in more trouble if you have a big outbreak in your area that if people get like that if you have a lockdown and people can't see a doctor and die or can't mm-hmm. get food Foods, or have sure, a bus accident. Sure, yeah. Right? It, it's a it's a very um the incentives have been completely distorted inside the system. And until those incentives are somehow um either completely removed or somehow rebalanced, I think it's hard to see how um we won't see more of these excesses or continuation of these excesses as local officials go to enforce the dynamic zero COVID policy. Yeah, you, you wrote about that this week and, and said there aren't incentives to quote unquote go soft on COVID controls. And it may be until March, people are going to be trying to protect their job as opposed to, you know, relaxing any sort of restrictions. But it, it, is that what you expect to happen? Because obviously, like every week, there's a rumor about China softening several this week. Yeah. Um, so I think so. So so the, what I, what I was talking about was this, this idea. You know, we've had the Party Congress, and there have been um, a fair number of personnel sh- changes. Um, you know, that's for the for the party. Then there's the state apparatus. The state their big meeting is in March um, for the National People's Congress, the NPC, and there there will be continuing sort of personnel shifts between now and through that NPC. It's usually the like the first. It's usually done by the by the fifteenth um, of March or thereabouts. Starts at the beginning of March, mm-hmm. and so one of the one of the sort of hypotheses is that um, actually, you know, there's been this hope that after the Party Congress, people could like everything would be clear and they could relax. One hypothesis is actually while there are still a bunch of officials who um, are jockeying for new jobs um, between now and that the MPC in March. And so for, again, again, back to the political incentives we were discussing earlier, they're, you know, they're absolutely incented to not have an outbreak on their watch. Right. Um, then again, you've got three different rumors this week about how this, the central government that the, has decided they've set up a group to talk about how to plan for uh, controlled reopening over the next several months. And though that would be, I think, People are exhausted. The economy is cratering. People are, you know, who are subject to some of these controls, people are getting increasingly frustrated mm-hmm. and exhausted. And uh, for people, I think, are running out of money because of the, the economic damage this is doing. And so logically, it makes sense that they would need to start planning about how to get out of this. Right. Um, and I think, you know, the the, the rumors this week were um, led to massive spikes in the Hong Kong and, and PRC stock markets, as well as U.S. listed China stocks. I think Bloomberg has a story today about how rumors, rumors, you know, create like popped the stock markets by $450 billion. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, everyone's exhausted. Everyone's hoping, you know, the, 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 the genius trade will be when you can time the reopening, mm-hmm. right? If you're the fund manager who picks the right stocks at the right time, because it's about to reopen, you know, you can, you can, you'll be like, You'll be the the hero for the year in terms of your performance. The challenge is that, as much as logically there's a reason they should start reopening soon, the flip side is all the reasons that they've 
they continue with dynamic zero COVID beyond the sort of the, the just the, the political imperative that was set by, set by Xi Jinping about how we are, our system is better than the West's and we, our approach to managing COVID shows our, our system superiority in terms of we are protecting mm-hmm. everyone's life is that the conditions for, you know, the logic behind why they have to have dynamic zero COVID to protect life it still still holds. They 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 have not done a good enough job vaccinating the, the people in the high risk groups. Yep. Um, the the Chinese vaccines with a booster are are very good at protecting against severe illness and death, but um, it, it doesn't again like here if you're not vaccinated, like a lot of a fair number of old people in China are vaccinated, they can get really sick and die. Mm-hmm. Um, there still aren't any good therapeutics, and the problem for China is. Their, you know, their their overall sort of medical infrastructure, hospital infrastructure, public health infrastructure, is is still not great, and so that it could very quickly be overwhelmed with, with a lot of illnesses if people got really sick. And I think if you look at some of the numbers that came out when when Hong Kong tried to open up, when Taiwan sort of basically said, okay, we're just going to open up, um, if you extrapolate sort of the numbers of serious illnesses and deaths to what could happen in China, you're still looking at potentially hundreds of thousands of deaths, mm-hmm. which would be a humanitarian, economic, and political disaster. But it's also a problem because a lot of people who've gotten COVID, you know, especially younger folks who are vaccinated, it's like a cold. And so they're sort of balancing the interests of the majority versus a, a smaller, more vulnerable group. But politically, if there were to be mass severe illness and mass death, that would be a really difficult thing from a political and social stability perspective. So they're kind of stuck. And, you know, based on their official numbers, they've had less than a million people have gotten COVID. I think it's going to be more than that. But there is basically no, like, natural immunity in the country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're also heading into the winter where there, where there's lots of variants going around. Works. Some of them yeah. sound like they have more um, immune escape than others. It, it, you know, it, it, if they were to suddenly, you know, start reopening in a big way, especially the outside world, Given the current conditions around vaccination and immunity, it, it you know it, it certainly seems like the risks are not low that something pretty bad could happen. The flip side is the economy is cratering. Yeah, so they're really stuck. So I have a number of reactions to what you just said, but first and foremost, what do we know about where things stand on their mRNA vaccine progress? Aren't they trying to develop that? internally rather than by any foreign vaccine. So they've had multiple programs, um, or multiple companies are trying to develop an mRNA vaccine. I think they're going into testing. Um, I think they announced one company is going to be running trials, I think in Indonesia and maybe somewhere else. I mean, it's not a, it's not a magic bullet. It's not a panacea, right? Mm-hmm. Because clearly people, people in the West, people in the U.S. who, who've gotten you know, their shots and boosters, mRNA, there's some people still getting sick. It's, it's, it's you not still like, contract it, but you're not dying. Right. But it's, but it's, but it'll take many, even if they launched it tomorrow, it would take many, many months to get, um, go through the full course and get enough people vaccinated. So, you know, people say, oh, if only they, you know, imported Pfizer when they had the chance, they wouldn't be here maybe, but it's not, it's not a magic bullet. And, um, you know, they've also rolled out this inhalable vaccine, which, Maybe more people will take it's 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 um but but they're behind again on the vulnerable groups they they still need a, many months to get them fully vaccinated and boosted mm-hmm. um, and then you know one of the things will be interesting is the the German Chancellor is visiting uh china Olaf, yeah uh, Olaf Scholz yeah visiting starting the fourth, and among his business delegation is the founder of BioNTech. so his presence will no doubt spur more sort of talk, rumors, hope that somehow 
finally China will des- decide to import um, or get a license to produce um, the BioNTech vaccine, and therefore everything will be fine very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for in terms of market momentum, you know, we had those rumors that pop stocks. That may also be something that gets people excited. I'm more skeptical, but. Well, yeah, I want to talk about the rumor that was circulating earlier in the week. I'll read an excerpt from Bloomberg earlier this week. Chinese stocks listed in the U.S. surged on Tuesday, fueled by speculation that Beijing is preparing to phase out COVID-0 policies, even as the nation's foreign ministry said it was unaware of such a plan. And as best I can understand it, the rumor here was centered on a tweet that featured a screenshot of a document written in Chinese. Um, the, the Twitter account is at Shanghai Macro. What did that document say? So, so that account, well, that account was just surfacing a document that was going around WeChat, mm-hmm. right? So, so the real impact was inside China and Hong Kong and like financial professionals who are on WeChat. Okay, and then he's just in some of those groups, and then he put it out on Twitter so other people, more, more people, could see it. But basically, it was that a group had been set up led by Wang Huning, who's who's on the Politburo Standing Committee. He has nothing. He's not a scientist. He's a he's a sort of a theorist, ideologist, um, propagandist. Okay, um, and. But he was chairing a group of uh, various constituencies, including um, health, health experts, to examine ways to um, plan for gradual reopening towards uh, by March. Mm-hmm. Right. And so and we don't know if that's true. It would make sense that they would have a group like this. It's not clear. I mean, it's interesting that the guy Wahuning would chair it, given his background. But I think part of it is that. If they were to start pushing towards reopening, they need to figure out how to um, properly get the message out. Because frankly, a lot of people in China, you know, they've they've been told repeatedly that COVID is awful and, you know, it's killing so many people outside of China and you should be afraid of it. Right. So they're going to have to shift the messaging to actually, if you're vaccinated, it's really not mostly okay. It's mostly okay. It's sort of the flu-ish or cold or whatever. It's not a big deal. So So if we start, I mean, one thing we'll be interesting to watch is if we start seeing a shift in the domestic propaganda towards kind of a, um, you know, sort of a, it's here's how you can live with it. Mm -hmm. That will be, I think, a good indication that something really is going on. I mean, one thing that's interesting here too is the, um, you know, Shanghai had that, that awful lockdown disaster in the spring and the party secretary of Shanghai has been promoted. He's now um, number two in the Paul Pierce Standing Committee. His name is Li Qiang and he's probably going to be the next premier. That's what everyone assumes. You know, we we don't know what really what was going on in Shanghai. The, Shanghai took a different approach where they tried to have a more sort of what they called scientific or targeted approach to the lockdowns. They didn't lock down the whole city. They didn't lock down big chunks of the city. They would lock down neighborhoods, a few buildings. And it looks like, and certainly the rumors, but again, we, we don't know for sure that he had convinced or he he had he thought he had convinced um Beijing, especially Xi Jinping, to let him test a different approach to deal with COVID that mm-hmm. wasn't so draconian, that wasn't so damaging to the economy, and that that's what they were trying to do in Shanghai when basically it just went haywire. It because It spiraled out too quickly because it was Omicron. They didn't, I don't think they understood how quickly it spread. And then it became this, and then they weren't ready. I mean, they just, the lockdown became a complete disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's possible that they're, you know, they've had a lot of learnings. It poss- it's possible at least the party at the sort of the, the central government level that they 
they could come up with, I think, fairly um, intelligent approach to how to deal with this. The problem will be if they really try and start reopening and going back to this sort of much more targeted approach is the implementation at the local level is, is going to be extremely spotty. And what do you mean by that? Just just the, the quality of the skill sets of local government officials is not the same as that at the top level of the, of the government and the party. And so you're going to end up with a lot of uh, potential for um, problems and you miss stuff and then you have an outbreak and then you have to react to the outbreak by going back to a draconian uh, step. And again, it also, if they really are, and this is all rumors, but if they really are shifting, trying to figure out a plan to sort of have a more gradual reopening, they're going to have to change the political incentives in the system. Yeah. You know, the local officials are going to have to understand that it's okay to have like some cases. Well, I was going to ask, am I correct in assuming that you're risking your job security if you do have cases in your province that you're managing like is that seen as as like the ultimate the, sin right the, now the problem or? is if you let it get out of control okay i mean i think there's a recognition that it's not it's impossible and even when they talk about dynamic zero covid they officially they repeatedly say it is not no covid mm-hmm. it is managing it so that when we find cases we deal with it and we isolate we if we need to we put people in centralized quarantine we keep we basically we cut the transmission chains, we end spread in the community, right? And then then we deal with it in this sort of these centralized management managed facilities. Right. Right. So so there so having cases isn't the end at all. It's if it gets out of control. Okay. And so the way you deal with that is you ship a lot of people into centralized quarantine facilities or outside your jurisdiction, or you don't report it. Yeah. And I think all that's happening. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting to try to forecast what might happen because coming at this as an outsider, one of the things that's been fascinating is that there are really two buckets. They're softening the lockdown strategy in China, but the markets also react to news that like quarantine is being shortened for international travelers and, and stuff like that. And so far, none of that has proven to actually be true, but it, they it's it's going to be like a question of when do they kind of relax some of the border restrictions, and then when are they going to become more tolerant of uh, case numbers that rise because they've risen literally everywhere else in the world? Right. Well, I think so. On the border stuff, they actually have. Um, I think the for for coming in from overseas, it, it's been reduced to like seven days in quarantine. I think then three days at home. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have cut that. Again, I think the problem too for is, is for the policymakers is, you know, with all the different variants variants that are around, you know, they, they for them to go cut. I mean, there's some talk. I think they're going to cut it to. I think one of the one of the rumors has the sort of quarantine when you arrive out from outside China to two days, and then yeah. you go five days. I mean, maybe they can make that work. It seems like it would be very risky to do that heading into winter. And it's still very difficult for outsiders to get into China. Right. right and, now. The, and this is not suddenly the borders are open and anyone can exactly. go. This is, you're still, it's still very difficult. It's, it's gotten easier, but it's still not easy to get a, get a visa to go to China. Yeah. Yeah. Like Formula One, I'm a F1 fan and they're planning a race in China next year. Mm-hmm. And my reaction to that news is like, there's a massive apparatus that needs to get into China to pull something like that off. 
And it just seems like it would be logistically impossible to land that plane, as it were. Uh, it's going to be hard. But again, if they can do it, that's a positive sign. Yeah. Right? I mean, they pulled off the Olympics. Yep, they did. Um, well, before we move on, I, I don't want to come on here and talk about COVID-0 every single week. Um, oh, even, I mean, it, it is the big thing in China. Right yeah, now. well, and, and I'm sure there's going to continue to be news. Um, but while we're taking a longer look at where things stand, I do want to highlight a few scenes that jumped out at me and, and underscore the implications of these policies on, on like the Chinese people. So first, um, speaking of foreign policy earlier this month, a Shanghai resident in his early 30s described his life as, quote, unimaginable. He said that right now, people entering public venues or taking public transportation need to show a negative COVID test taken within 72 hours. He now takes a COVID test after lunch every other day, and queuing for it can take hours. And then another resident is quoted, it's almost impossible for most ordinary people to live even an average life under all the strict rules and regulations, said Shu, a woman in her 20s, who asked that only her last name be used. It takes extraordinary amounts of effort to be ordinary. Um, and so, yes, that's the, the look at young people. And then another stat about young people. In 2022, there will be a record high 10.76 million college graduates. And as of the end of May, only 22% of male graduates and 10% of female graduates had signed an employment contract. And then another story that emerged this week, there were thousands of people locked inside Shanghai Disneyland for upwards of 10 hours um, because of a single positive COVID test. And later in the week, they, I, I believe... Anyone who is at Disneyland was told they need to test negative three times before they can go to work or school. Um, and it's it just there are experiences like that throughout. There is one other one. Sophia Yan of The Telegraph tweeted a, a video of a man in quarantine who can't afford the cost of quarantine, but is told he can't leave and his health code will remain red until he pays up. And obviously, a red code means that he can't go out to work and earn money. And so in this video, he offers to work off the debt at the quarantine hotel. But the hazmat official says that's not possible. And then the end of the video shows the electricity going out and officials denying the man meals. And the, the main reason I read all that is because I feel like people in the West are passively aware of what's going on, but aren't necessarily aware of how extreme it, it, and frankly oppressive it can look in practice. Are there general thoughts that you have on all of this beyond like why it's made sense? So I think what it sort of is designed in Beijing, it looks very logical when it gets pushed out into different localities, as it sort of goes down the system of bureaucracies inside China, you end up with lots of abuses. And so, for example, the guy, the, the video, the poor guy who was basically told you pay or you're going to lose, you know, you, you electricity can cut off. And he's like, I, you know, that, that is, you know, local, local government, local officials, you know, local governments are, are being, you know, in the U S we talked about, um, what are they? What do they call unfunded mandates? Right. Mm -hmm. So local governments are having all sorts of stuff pushed on them that they have to do, 
um, that they have to pay for. Local governments are many local governments are under extreme fiscal pressure because of the um, decline, you know, problems in the real estate market, the, the decline in the real estate market, the economic problems. So you know they're all struggling. A lot, a lot of them are struggling for cash too. So it's creating all these conflicting incentives and pressures inside the system, and so that ultimately leads to leads to these abuses. And there are, and frankly. You know, there's no check, right? There's no like. It's not like you can call your lawyer and say, "Hey, they're not. You know, they're making me pay my electricity bill." That's not how that the system works, and so um, it is rife for abuse. The flip side is, you know, people are exhausted now. You see lots more complaints because of some of these crazy abuses, and there's another horrible one this week where a, a child died because they couldn't get a three year old because they couldn't get medical care in time because they weren't allowed to leave their community oh. because of the. Um, and then the police. Came. It was. It's awful, and this has happened. Many, you know, several times now. The flip side is, you know, I think if if you have a situation where all all sorts of old people are dying and your relatives are dying, yeah, you're going to have a different set of angry people. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a it's it's just I mean, it's it's a pandemic and nobody wins in a pandemic, right? It's awful. Ultimately, it's awful for everybody on some level everywhere. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the the absence of any sort of check. Is it? completely unrealistic that there would be enough backlash for this policy to change like if popular sentiment becomes so negative on where things stand now is it likely to to move the needle in beijing or will it simply be a question of you know market dynamics and and what the economy needs that ultimately pushes them to soften things and adapt uh, I think you'll see when there are specific abuses that surface or go viral online in China, they deal with those specific instances. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think so far we've seen sort of social pressures um, enough that would force sort of a much bigger change. You see some tweaking and we can, we've seen calibrations and tweaking and, you know, but Shanghai, Shanghai was Shanghai, the, you know, the most sophisticated city in China was people were many, you know, so some large number of people were food insecure, mm-hmm. a bunch of suicides, awful stuff going on, and lots and lots of angry people. And yet, yeah. you know, I mean, the system there there's a lot of incentives that the that the government has built in to keep to to basically have to to keep people from thinking it's it's a good idea to protest too much. Right. Yeah. Because the costs are way too high. It's just hard for me to wrap my head around all of this because, like, I think back to our conversations about party congress and scientific progress and prowess was emphasized, like, over and over again by Xi. And there's an aspect of this policy that is just fundamentally unscientific when when you look at what the disease does and like the reality that there's no way to outrun this disease it, and, it, but which is what's which is what's so confusing and and frankly head scratching because we you talk about all the, the different ways that that uh, the government you know all the different course of tools and methods the government has and yet they didn't force the, uh, the, the most vulnerable yeah. populations to get vaccinated and boosted when you think they could have. And, and, and so if, if they were a situation where the vast majority of elderly and immunocompromised vulnerable populations had at least three shots mm-hmm. so that the likelihood of, of, of severe illness or death were very low, 
they would have much more flexibility, I think, in terms of how they open. And so the question would be, and of course, like, so for example, if these rumors are true and Friday we get some announcement that there's a, a material loosening of these policies, well, then you will, you'll know, okay, this is, it was really political, right? Because they wanted yeah. a way for the Congress and, you know, the, the sort of the fundamental sort of the, un- the underlying challenges haven't changed two weeks or 10 days after the Congress, but they've shifted. So it was political. Um, I, you know, I don't know. My, my gut, my guess is it's uh, one, of course it's political because mm-hmm. there's been a lot of political value uh, really up until March where the Shanghai lockdown, the end of March, early April, where the, where the Shanghai, Shanghai lockdown and everything went sideways, there was massive support inside China for these policies. It's just been since then where things have gotten, there've been more and more rolling om- lockdowns, but it's because of Omicron, it's because of the variants, right? The previous, the previous variants of, 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 of COVID were, were relatively easy to deal with. And so, but so, so one is um, there's a political element, but I do, I do believe that, you know, there are policymakers or scientists, doctors in the system who do are very concerned about, you know, looking at what happened in other countries, specifically like Taiwan, mm-hmm. like Hong Kong, Hong Kong, especially um, where, you know, if they let it rip and it got into the elderly population, they, they would have a lot of, a lot of old people who would probably die. And that would be a whole different set of Do you have problems. a sense for whether the government is investing in hospital infrastructure? While not they- fast enough. Okay. Nowhere, nowhere near fast enough. And it's not just the hardware, it's the software, it's the people. It's not, it's not enough. And, you know, we're even in the major cities, it's not great. When you get out into the, to the, to the lower that, you know, China has a tier system. So like first tier is like Beijing, Shanghai, and I think three other cities, then you have second through like fifth, maybe you have six tier cities. Now I'm not even sure. As you go further down the tiers, you know they get the infrastructure gets worse and worse. And then you have rural areas, and so um, it, it just it's one of those things where they kind of overdid the propaganda about how great we are. It, yeah, the propaganda. You know, is, they is sort of tough. they got high on their own supply to use like a like a American term. Well, and it, there was a viral tweet this week where a Chinese business consultant was saying. The Western economy is going to fall to its knees because of long yeah. That, COVID. that was that that was sometimes were a little bit off. He he wasn't as dire as what he said in Chinese. Okay. It was just that there's going to be a lot of problems in Western economies and the labor force for for um from the potential for um long COVID causing um disabled mm-hmm. causing disabilities. And that's wrong too. I mean, it's not supported by the evidence. Yeah, we have. I mean, we it, we. I don't want to like, let's all knock on yeah, wood yeah, on that yeah, one, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but it's, it, it's, it's very tricky from afar watching this happen. It, like, it's just really sad that, because yeah. I, I could also understand why the Chinese citizens, they don't have the, the same information that we have. So you can arrive at a conclusion where you look at the West and it's all crazy. And this is the, the only path forward. Um, but it's just imposing these enormous costs, enormous on personal, human, and economic costs, and and it really, I think the the I mean, it's just it. Everyone feels like something has to give. Exactly what that is is is. I, I wish I had a good answer. Yeah. Well, maybe something will give before March. Um, but for now, um, let's move to another aspect of the COVID story. Um, and this is fun because everyone who's involved in the debate about COVID's origins is super relaxed and open-minded about the whole discussion. So uh, we'll wade into these waters carefully. 
Uh, last week, ProPublica and Vanity Fair released a huge report on the origins of COVID. Most of the substance in that article was drawn from a report drafted by the minority oversight staff of a committee in the Senate, um, a Republican-led effort there, which I think informed some of the reactions. Uh, I'll read the final two paragraphs before I get your impressions of, of what the report said. Without the cooperation of China's government, we can't know exactly what did or didn't happen at the WIV or what precise set of circumstances unleashed SARS-CoV-2. But the dispatches that read unearthed, when overlaid with additional evidence the Senate team compiled, point to a catastrophe in the making. Political pressure to excel, inadequate resources to safeguard risky work, and an effort to skirt blame once a crisis hit. As Reed sees it, the international community must continue to demand answers. Quote, if you just throw up your hands and, and say, we'll never know because it's China and just move on. If you take that defeatist approach to things, you can't prepare yourself to prevent something like this from happening in the future. So just generally speaking, what was your initial reaction to this report? And did that reaction change the, the closer you looked at it? So I hate talking about origins because it is such a religious issue. Um, and the answer is I have no idea. And I would assume probably everybody listening has no idea what actually happened. We, mm -hmm. People have suspicions, guesses. Um, I think the last bit you, you quoted about sort of basically talking about none of transparency is absolutely true. And I think um, around the issue of whether or not it was from nature or it was a lab leak, I think the most interesting comment about um, possible origins came last year from the um, Secretary General of the World Health Organization, Tedros, after there was a, a group that the WHO put together. It wasn't an investigation, but it was sort of a group that went to China to talk to the Chinese about sort of possible origins. And the, it was a very, it was heavily politicized. The report um, was unsatisfactory in the sense that it didn't come to any definitive conclusions. It sort of listed possibilities and lean more towards some sort of a natural zoonotic origin mm -hmm. from some animal. Um, but, and that original, then when it first came out, the Chinese were very happy because they felt like this sort of put, put the nail in the coffin of this idea that there was some sort of a incident or a leak at the, at the Wuhan, one of the Wuhan labs that led to the, led to the pandemic. Um, and then Tedros himself at the press conference basically said all, he reject, he didn't reject it, but he said all hypotheses are on the table. So he completely reopened the the discussion in a broader way about whether or not maybe this came from a lab versus like the, the market mm -hmm. selling wild animals nearby. Um, so, but there's no question that the, the, the Chinese side has been not transparent enough. They will of course deny it up and down, but the reality is. And that is, was the case even with the world health organization, yeah, their follow-up yeah, visit. Yeah. Right? So, um, but this particular report, which I think we should focus on that because like I said, we, you know, we lots of us have opinions, or or some may have opinions about what really happened. But I again, I mean, we can I, just we sit know. here and spitball for an right. hour. But or so, two. <laughs> so this, so I want to talk specifically about this report. Yeah. The, the 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 premise of this report, as sort of put out in the Vanity Fair ProPublica piece, was that they found this guy who works at the State Department, who could learn Chinese, who self-professed had discovered like the magic decoder ring for secret communist party speak mm. so he could read these public documents 
that had been posted on like the lab's website. And because of his magic decoding abilities. Can I be honest with you? When I was reading and I saw I just the laughed. way that was framed. I just laughed. I was well, like, first of all, it, it's like a 40 minute read. And I, I read that paragraph and I was like, you know what? I'm going to come back to this. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, just, I mean, it like, was, it was uh, my reaction and you will link to the article. My reaction was, okay, I'm really curious what this says, but for somebody to say that, it's bullshit. Excuse yeah. me, you might have to bleep that out. I don't know what your, I don't know what the the language rules are on a new podcast. All good. But, yeah, we'll see. But I was just like, give me a freaking break. Um, but anyway, so so the the fundamental premise was he had a special understanding of how to read party documents, and therefore, from these Chinese language documents, he was able to decode that there were all these problems, mm-hmm. and there are some. F- Basic translation errors in in the documents that, that are linked to in the Vanity Fair piece. I know some folks who are looking at the broader translations. It's a disaster. It is an embarrassment. Wow. It's a waste of taxpayer money, this report. So, and again, this is not to say that it's not possible that something happened in the lab, but this report is just disgraceful. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's like for the people who are Disgraceful actually— Disgraceful largely because of the basic errors. Well, because are, because they—and I know the, the way they like—in the Vanity—I mean, the Vanity Fair report, I should say, is disgraceful. Yeah. And the way—the ProPublic report, the way they like—the experts they consulted, they're the ones who allegedly corroborated the magical decoding were anonymous. Hmm. Um, I know of at least one who— Views were skewed, were were not totally represented. What he what he had said, or what this person had said in response to the queries, um, there there just there just so many problems that basic like hey maybe we should bring in some other people who understand Chinese to sort of double that's what I didn't double understand. check because maybe it's a little risky to rely on the one guy with the magic party speak decoder ring, mm-hmm. and you know you also have to step back and say okay. You know, the U.S. government has devoted a lot of resources to trying to figure out the origins of COVID. The intelligence community has devoted a lot of resources. Partner, allied governments, Five Eyes, intelligence, share, intelligence. Yeah, there was, there was a Biden have devoted a lot of resources to trying to understand this stuff. They have people who speak Chinese. They have people who have spent a lot of time trying to understand these things like these documents. So the idea that this one guy can suddenly like see the light should really have raised alarm bells, not just at Vanity Fair and ProPublica, but also in that committee that was doing this report. And that's why I say it's a waste of taxpayer money, because they, I think they kind of knew what they wanted to say. Yeah. Right? And, they, you know, and the problem is, again, it goes back to my point, though, which is it's, it, for people who really want to understand what happened and get to the bottom of, of, of the origins of COVID for all sorts of reasons, you know, this sets back that effort. That was the most compelling point. I saw in response to this story, which is that if you care about the origins, this is easily dismissed and ultimately it's a clown show. Yeah. Well, and it's also, I mean, I, I read a long editorial in the, in the LA times treating the mistakes in this report as evidence that the lab leak theory is a third rail conspiracy, conspiracy theory. And, you know, doesn't prove that it doesn't, It do, but it, it's, it's so screwed up that it can sort of be weaponized to suppress ongoing discussion of all this. And that's not the outcome that serves really anybody. No. And you think that's not the outcome that like this committee wanted, but that's where we ended up. And quite frankly, I was actually, I mean, it's DC, you know, there's all sorts of politica- politicized stuff. I just was frankly shocked that ProPublica would publish this. And I, I will, I won't be surprised if there's either 
some massive corrections or actually they eventually have to retract the article. Well, and that's what's fun about doing this with you. You're plugged into the community of, of experts in this field. Is there any indication that they're reaching out for follow-up? I mean, like... Yeah, they, they yeah. Okay. Yeah. But again, they're, I think they're doing things they should have done before they published. In terms of just like checking the, their bases. Checking the translations that are yeah. basically fundamental to the thesis put forward. You know, there are bits in these reports that are like, okay, they talk about how they need to suddenly order an air incinerator, right? Which is the things that are interesting. The other problem, actually, there, so there's an AP reporter named Dake Kong who's on Twitter. Um, he's written some groundbreaking work. He's based in China. I think he's still in China. I think he still has his visa. Some groundbreaking stories about the origins, the early days of COVID in Wuhan where, where, where it first appeared. And he went through the report. He looked at things. He tweeted a couple of days ago how – even one of these, you know, they, they matched up the, the, the sort of the, these releases on the, the, Institute, the, the Virology Institute's website or the lab's website. And basically they mapped the date and said, oh, something was happening at this date. And it corresponds to right when we think or people think that maybe the first cases were appearing, say, November mm-hmm. of 2019. It turns out like one of the key documents actually was from August and they got the date wrong. So it's like not only was the Chinese, there were problems with the translation, there's also problems with the provenance of the or the dating of these documents. I, I saw the date issue, and that's when I threw up my hands and was like, yeah. "How did this even get?" Yeah, I mean, published? it's just frustrating <laughs> because this is such a such a massive, such a serious issue with global importance, global import, and and the people behind this look like clowns, mm. and they wasted. Our, if you're a U.S. taxpayer, they wasted your money doing this report. They also wasted forty minutes of my time yes. reading this, like lengthy lengthy report 15,000 words who knows exactly how long it was in in general <laughs> um how have you navigated these waters the past couple of years it's such a politicized issue and everyone is angry about it the entire time they're discussing it but it, it is a real story so i mean what's your what's your approach here basic approach is i have no idea yeah. And most people don't. And, you know, it took, it took I think, seven years to figure out um, where the original the SARS virus came from. Um, and, you know, we're dealing with, uh, e- even if it were natural origin, the Chinese, that they destroyed a whole bunch of evidence and they cleaned out the market. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, we've, we're also dealing with occurrence of, and I, I, do, I do think that there was a concerted effort um, early on to, push people towards believing it could only be from nature. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think there's some, some, some folks in the scientific community and also in the media who have a lot of egg on their face now because they've too quickly closed off other possibilities given the history of lab leaks around the world. Yeah. Um, I, I think that um, my view is, I mean, I, had, I remember when I was in, living in Beijing, I had a friend, a real estate developer who's, you know, was retired and, he once went on this eating tour of rural Hubei, which is with the province where Wuhan is located, and was posting on WeChat all these pictures of the of the stuff they were eating. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, there's no question that there was significant like trade consumption of the kinds of animals that could carry these viruses, and that's fine. That happens all over the world. I mean, right. look at, you know, that's that's. I mean, we eat game in America, right? It's like people eat game everywhere. Mm-hmm. We eat wild game everywhere, and. So, but I think the point is that, um, you know, there, there's certainly highly possible that it came from some sort of animal that was sort of consumed or shipped or found in, 
in or around Wuhan that then infected an individual or a group of people at the market or maybe somebody. I mean, we just don't know, right? It's right. certainly possible, but it's also, you know, there's also people um, who who are, have strongly held views that something happened in the lab. I, I just don't know. But the idea that we, you know, the New York Times ran a piece a couple months ago by some scientists who said using all this different data, they had proven that it came from the market. And, you know, they, they did this big story about this paper that I think was a preprint and then and after then then it was revised and the conclusions of the paper were softened, but the New York Times never changed their like yeah. conclusion. And it's just like, you know, but I but I understand it, right? Because if it came God forbid it came from a lab, it's gonna lead to all sorts of problems and a lot more racism and all sorts of horrible stuff. So my personal hope is it came from an animal. Yeah. Right? But I just think the idea that people out there speak so confidently about where it came from is I don't understand how they're doing it. Right. And and I think some of it is a response to what President Trump was saying during the pandemic and the the racism that he was trafficking in. And so people just sort of reflexively were tempted to shut down any sort of discussion of this. I mean, for me, I absolutely agree with that. One of the most remarkable pieces of journalism of the last couple of years was that New York Magazine story about the lab leak hypothesis where it was a really comprehensive look at some of the circumstantial evidence. And at the time it was published, it required a lot of courage to go out there and treat that theory as potentially legitimate. Um, But at the same time, you know, I have a friend who's in medicine who said, look, we truly have no idea. And I think that's the correct answer here. And if you say we have no idea, there are going to be people out there who say, you're just soft peddling the the truth and covering for China and the Chinese government. And it's kind of an unfortunate place to be. No, it's, it's, you know, again, I go back to what I said earlier about the, um, the secretary general of the WHO. I mean, his, his statement that all hypotheses are still on the table was really quite eye opening because that was, I think, again, that also, I think changed the debate a little bit because, you know, and the Chinese were, didn't know what to do because they were so like, they loved him. And, mm-hmm. you know, he had, he had sort of defended the Chinese to be the pandemic. And then they, they, it was hard for them to suddenly attack him as saying possibly it might have been a sort of some sort of a man-made event or right. some sort of a, a lab leak kind of thing. Um, but like you said, we, we don't know. We may never find out, right? They may never find the animal. If it's zoonotic, if it's something else, we probably will never know. Yeah. Um, and so... If you had to guess, will we ever find out? I, I don't know. Yeah. You know, and I mean, it, and it, it does matter. Um, it also, it also matters more at this point, sort of, you know, sort of how we move forward. I mean, what, what lessons do we learn from how we respond to these things? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but there's also some stuff that gets lost in the, um, in the, the sort of the, the vitriol around the origin, excuse me, which is, you know, the Chinese had SARS. They, they did cover it up until there was a whistleblower who came out and there's a PLA doctor. Um, and then they had to deal with it and they had put in a system and one of their top, um, health professionals had bragged that we put in this this surveillance system. So SARS can never happen again. Mm -hmm. And of course it happened many, many, many times worse because they, the local guys overrode the system and, you know, they, they covered it up. They, they effectively doctors who started talking about it were called in by the police and warned, you know, it was, it was a, you know, regardless of what happened, whether it was natural or not, 
there's a lot of culpability from the local officials in Wuhan for the first few weeks of covering this up, right? Because we'll never know if that if had they reacted the way they their own system had said they would react, whether or not that would have kept this from becoming this global pandemic. But it certainly would have increased the odds, mm-hmm. right? Well, we're beyond that, but it's like it's like we we just you know it it it. it it, but it, what's what's crazy, right? We're almost, you know, if 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 you believe that the first cases appeared in November 2019, it's basically almost three years now, yeah. right? And you know, that's what's kind of back to our earlier conversation. You know, it's it's like there are no winners from this pandemic, right? In some ways, China and the Communist Party and Xi Jinping were talked about how they, you know this proves our systems better, but now they're really stuck. Yeah. And so how they manage the sort of exit from this is going to be, I think, really pretty dicey. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll continue to monitor the, monitor that exit process every week, I'm sure. Um, I should have known you were too responsible to actually guess as to whether we'll find out. <laughs> um, I, I, My guess is that the only way we ever f- get to a conclusive answer is if there were zoonotic origins for covid and if it is a lab leak we will just never have enough evidence to say that definitively well there's a great story if we got a minute um and this is not to support the idea it came from a lab but i think it's just it's a it's a historical parallel in some ways which was um and there was some of the washington post i think uh, did a great story a few years ago so there was this anthrax leak from this this place called sverdlovsk yep um, in 1979, and um, I'm reading the Wikipedia so I can remember it. It's now called Yekaterinburg or Yekaterinburg, um, and 66 people died. Mm-hmm. And the, so- the Soviets said it was, and it was, I think it was detected um, by one of the neighboring countries. And the Soviets said, oh, it was, it was like bovine ant. It was from the from the cows. Um, and they even got, I think, a Harvard expert to sort of validate that it was some sort of a natural thing. And then when the Soviet Union fell and people started talking, including Yeltsin, they admitted, no, it was, it was, we were doing military experiments and it leaked. Yeah. Right. But the system is so, it's so closed down and it's so secretive that the only way that people ever found out with any, any conclusive evidence that it was actually a leak versus natural was the system had to basically fracture. Right. Um, And again, this is not to say this is shows that this came from the lab, but I think we shouldn't underestimate the level of opacity and secrecy inside the PRC system. One thing I will add is when you want to talk about theories. So there's a guy named Jeffrey Sachs. I think he's still at Columbia. He's a professor and he's like, he was an economist. Now he does a lot of public health stuff, but he's not a, he's not a scientist. He's not a virologist, epidemiologist, but he was chair of some Lancet commission that was trying to investigate the origins. And the Chinese generally love him because he's very anti-American. He regularly appears on, um, PRC propaganda outlets. He's regularly praised in various PRC uh, official publications. Um, he's now out with this, this hypothesis that actually it was a lab leak, but it was America's fault because it was American researchers working with people That's in the Wuhan Our hands using American clean. technology. And so actually, so he's basically, while he, he sort of admits that it was something happened at the lab in Wuhan, he puts all the blame on America. Yeah. And most, you know, the scientists in here are like, this guy's gone crazy. 
Right. right. Well, and that's why when you look at some of the circumstantial evidence, it would make sense that we played a role as well in terms of what we were funding and the gain of function research that we were pushing. So it's not really to to and uh, nobody's trying to vilify the Chinese government. Um, well, plenty of people have. Well, well right. yeah, but I, my, the, as I look at it as a potential like legitimate theory, it's not necessarily like absolving us. of No. And God role. forbid that's what happened. That's like the, you know, the, that talk about toxic engagement. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I don't mean to make a joke about it, but I, I mean, I certainly hope that's not what happened. Again, we don't know, but I just found like the way Jeffrey Sachs has been pushing this conspiracy, which of course is relegated to sort of the fringe now, even though he was chairing this land or may still be this Lancet commission, but the scientific community all just think he's gone cuckoo. But again, you know, there are lots of, there are lots of conflicting incentives, I think, in sort of what gets talked mm-hmm. about. Well, we probably will never know the truth, but if we do learn the truth, you'll we'll come hear back for about a it on Sharp China. Can I ask one question at the end? Sure. You posted a photo of a feast this past weekend. What were you eating? So we were having um, a hot pot. I brought back a couple of um, like sort of copper hot pots where you basically put charcoal in the middle. You have to use them outside or in a well-ventilated place. And you basically just you boil the water, you put some ingredients in the water to make it taste better, and then you can boil all sorts of kind of thinly sliced meat, seafood, vegetables, whatever. It looked phenomenal. It's fun. We'll have you over. Yeah, I'll have to come over, walk over. A little chilly the on the porch. It was it was in the 40s, but we had a fire going. So I, I was, saw that you were on the porch. And drink a little bit. It's all good. Yeah, I respected you braving the elements out there. Um, I was very jealous this past weekend. But I, the other thing, I really enjoy following you on Twitter because it's all really useful news or pictures of Tashi or your garden, or food. (laughs) So These days, I think Tashi is the most useful thing. I don't know. Oh, yeah. It's been a couple days since we got a good Tashi pick, so (laughs) um, that's your homework assignment. But for now, uh, we will come back next week, and um, I look forward to more of these. Great. My pleasure. Good to talk to you. 